This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we look at the biggest issues facing real estate in the pandemic and its economic fallout. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today on the program, Rick Gropper, a principal at Canberra Property Group. Rick co-founded the company with Andrew Mollis back in 2016 after working as a development director at L&M Property Partners. Canberra has about 6,500 units in the city, most of which are affordable, and about 3,000 affordable units in the pipeline in New York, give or take, through preservation or ground-up development. We're talking about working in communities that have been burnt by developers before in a minute. But first, Rick walked me through what it was like to break out on their own in the development world. We started Canberra five years ago with just Andrew and me two offices in like two closets with like a bunch of garbage everywhere. And it was kind of actually kind of embarrassing when we had to meet with investors or, or like meet with even consultants or different people. And we brought them to our office. We tried to hide the boxes and garbage everywhere. And then we slowly started from there to build the company really from the ground up. And we had a unique opportunity. Um, We saw that there was a need for additional developers of affordable housing in New York City. There are some great developers who have been doing this stuff for a really long time. And there's so, there's so much demand for affordable. And there was an, we identified this opportunity for a younger development firm with a unique outlook on the development process. And I think we've taken on some challenging projects and have been able to deliver on them. Deliver meaning primarily or most importantly, being able to go to the residents and say, hey, we're, we're going to buy the building, we're, we're going to work with you, we're going to improve the conditions in this building and preserve the affordability for the next 30 or 40 years. And we're different than the people from the past who promised you the same thing and didn't actually execute on it. So the company is, as far as I understand, a for-profit, affordable, and mixed-use developer. So yes. So you make money, but only within that particular housing space. So you are very obviously very different to just like the average developer who's making you know whatever building on billionaires row. Do you think the public um, can see that difference, or do they just say developer blanket term? I think for-profit developer has become a negative thing in the current political climate and people hear oh for-profit developer these guys are greedy they're self-centered they're they just want to make whatever x dollars and then go on to the next project and we are a for-profit developer we do make money on development and on the ownership and operation of buildings but we also care very much about the work that we're doing. We are really dependent on our reputation to complete projects and do what we actually say we're going to do. So there's a balance, I think, in the affordable industry between profit and social good. We are focused on doing 
the right thing by the residents of the buildings, by the community. And I think by doing that, you set yourself up for long-term success. On a practical level, like what does that look like? Because people always say community buy-in, they say work with the community, communicate with the community. I mean, that just seems like words to me. I just want to imagine what it actually looks like on like an average Wednesday. Is it visiting the mm-hmm. building and like having a cup of tea with someone who like, what is it? What is yeah. community buying? Well, while we were talking, I actually, I did, I, I just got a call from like one of the residents of one of, of like the first building that we bought who had an issue with something that was happening there. So a lot of, a lot of residents in the buildings have my cell phone number. I mean, we own like 6,500 units and not everyone has my cell phone number, but I give it out and I want to know that that if something is really a problem in one of our buildings, I want to know about it so that we can fix it. Um, and we have property managers and asset managers who deal with this day to day. But the question of how does community engagement really work and what does it mean? There, there are definitely those are buzzwords, stakeholder engagement, community engagement, outreach, but it's a real thing. And it's really important. It involves developing partnerships with the organizations in the communities that have been doing work for years, meeting the stakeholders of communities. There are people who have lived in the areas in which we work for decades. People who live there, they have a good sense of what the neighborhood wants to see in some cases in terms of retail or community facility or additional services, a playground, a park. And there's a huge, there's a wealth of information in all of these communities. And people who live there have preferences about what they want to see. So it really requires work and engagement. And you have to be there. You have to have meetings with the organizations and really go and introduce yourself and say, hey, we're thinking about buying this site or we own this site or we own this building and we want to talk to you about what we can do to make the lives better of the people who live in this neighborhood. It's interesting that you started Canva in 2016 because that's that like charts boiling point of rage over time. (laughs) People have slowly become angrier and angrier about development and become more and more upset about the unfairness of the city. Yeah, I think there's been an inequality conversation that has been bubbling up for a long time. It was exacerbated, I think, in the prior presidential election. And that, I think, served kind of as um, kindling for a fire that has become greater. And it's difficult to counteract some of the negative connotations of, um, of for-profit developers. We're, I think, I think affordable developers in general are for the, you know, for the most part, do the, do the right thing by the people that I've mentioned, the tenants, the stakeholders, and are really good at operating affordable housing. Um, I don't think that there's, and there's also a focus from advocates and and other people on nonprofit developers, which is great, but I don't think nonprofit developers should be focused on at the exclusion of for-profit developers in, in the affordable space. I think there's enough demand for affordable housing in New York City that there's room for everyone to, to play a part. 
this conversation, this rage and this boiling tension and the focus on affordable housing, both in the city but nationally, has it made your job easier or has it made your job harder, do you think? I think the conversation on, the national conversation on affordable housing has brought more resources and more attention to the space, which I think is great. It has also brought some negative attention in terms of a conversation that like, that is anti-for-profit development, that is anti-gentrification. It, it has really kind of made it more difficult to work in, in New York City and also to do things like get rezonings done. We're, you're rezoning a parking lot that is zoned manufacturing and you're willing to convert that to a residential zoning and to include affordable housing in that in that zoning it shouldn't be that difficult of a conversation as long as you are engaging the stakeholders and are willing to do what you say you're going to but any kind of gentrification, any kind of conversation on, on housing has in some cases turned into a conversation on gentrification, even though building more housing units in an area that is has a lot of manufacturing zoning would have potentially have an opposite effect. Creating more supply would relieve some of the, the pressure on the few housing units that exist in that area. And the, the reason, one of the reasons that people are being forced out of different areas is because there's a lack of supply and landlords are for profit and landlords are economically driven in some cases and want the most money for their apartments and people get forced out, which is, which is terrible. Um, but building more housing is in some ways an opportunity to counteract some of that. So I think that conversation is very difficult, but there's the, the fact that there's a lot of attention, there's a lot of focus and a lot of investment in affordable housing has been good for us because there's a whole new landscape of investors and funds and um, institutional capital that want this type of investment. They, they like it, that it's, it is in some cases de-risk, that it's discounted to market, that it's that it's also providing a social good, that it's having a community impact, that, there, that it has an effect on, on the community and, and society in general. So they might not be you know, tripling, the investor might not be tripling its money, but the investor is getting a risk-adjusted return, taking less risk on the investment and doing something that's good for everyone. From what I understand, you've never been in the area where you buy rent-regulated apartments. It's not something that you have ever been part of, right? It's more about buying up a property and using Section 8 housing vouchers to rehabilitate. And you also do ground up development as well. Has there been, I remember when I spoke with you just as the rent regulations were passed, and you said that that, that means there would be opportunities for people who were kind of offloading rent regulated apartments or apartment blocks that didn't garner the same profits as they used. Did that turn out to be the case? Has that been an opportunity for you? No, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> really? Why not? Um, well, so we were expecting, so people before, the, before changes to rent stabilization, landlords, owners were buying rent stabilized housing with the intention of buying residents out and using the exemptions to rent stabilization to increase the rent roll. And 
owners, buyers were paying a lot of money for those types of assets. With the changes to rent stabilization, that really like immediately killed that business plan for some of those people. And I think I still think there is an opportunity for us to buy some of those distressed assets. People, you know, if you buy something based on a business plan that you can't execute, you're paying, you're buying it on a very low in place return. And at some point, the bank has to get that the bank that you borrowed money from to buy the building or your investors, or if you have subordinate debt that you got from that 10%, someone is going to come calling. And I think that there still will be an opportunity to take over some of those buildings. I know there have been some cases where lender, the lender has taken over the property, but they're not necessarily ready to take a write down on their mortgage on their basis. And even at the lender's basis, it doesn't, the deal doesn't still doesn't make sense. So you were kind of expecting that prices would decompress significantly and that you would be able to step in and pick up some of those, those properties, but it hasn't quite come to bear just yet. Yeah. So the rent stabilized market has definitely reset. And I think people went from paying a four, a four cap for rent stabilized buildings to, to a six cap. What we were expecting was some of the people who bought those buildings at a four cap to have to sell them quickly at a discount or lender taking back property and selling it and then writing down the mortgage to some extent and selling it. Um, that hasn't happened as quickly as we thought, but I think at some point there will be some more opportunities in that, in that area where we can buy something at a reasonable basis and work with the city to structure a tax abatement that in turn allows us to restrict the, the rents in the building for affordable housing you know, for the next 30 years. What about with, with what's happened in the past year with the, the pandemic crisis where people who own lots of uh, residential multifamily units, maybe mix of, of regulated and market rate, had, are taking a significant hit on their market rate rents and selling perhaps at a discount. Is that a possibility? Are you predicting for that? Or do you think it's going to hold up? I mean, the, word, the, the rental market, the market rate rental market in, in New York City has gotten very difficult. We're, we're leasing a building in Ridgewood, Queens right now that um, where we're giving significant concessions. We're probably 20% under what we initially thought. In your market rate properties or what? We have a 70-30 in Ridgewood, Queens that we just finished. It's 132 units. And um, fortunately, in that case, we have long-term investors. We have long-term debt. So we're not in a difficult position. And we have time to lease up the property. Long-term, it's going to be still a well-performing property. But in order to get there, we've had to cut, just to get units leased up, we've had to take a pretty significant short-term discount to, to the rents that we were, that we were expecting to get. And I think there are some, I mean, you're seeing in the news, some people who were building condos who were in the middle of construction of condos or who had a, had a rental building that was levered up uh, with expensive debt or pref equity. You're seeing some of that come to a head but that's not necessarily going to translate for, as deals for you, right? Or is it? No, it doesn't necessarily translate translate for us. Um, but I think there are some opportunistic buyers who are looking at that as 
as um, something that they can get in and take over at a more reasonable basis. And as long as they have the right financing in place, can do well on it. Even so, I have noticed that you've been very active over the past, say, like year, year and a half, right through the crisis in multiple acquisitions and partnerships. What's driving that? Were those already in the works and they just moved forward? There was nothing that had to be put on pause? We've been very active in the both development and acquisition of affordable over the past year or so. Some of it was pre-COVID where deals that we were in contract before March of last year. Some of it is new. There's a very significant demand for project-based Section 8 housing. And I think that was that was further brought to the surface as during COVID when in, in New York City and somewhat around the country, people were having difficulty paying their rent. With the project-based Section 8 building, when someone loses their job, Section 8 and HUD generally picks up the difference. So it's great for the people who live there to a two family household with two kids, both parents work in the service industry and are no longer employed. You can do a recertification and HUD will increase the rent that it's paying. So for those people, it's a real lifeline. For the landlord, it's a reliable stream of income. And that's always been the case, but it was further pronounced as a result of COVID, where now we're seeing, even in New York City, vacancy rates at one point, I think, were, were around 20 to 30%. Even in New York City, where you thought that it was going to be 3%, even in a bad scenario. And there was kind of like a flight to quality. There were more investors that, in general, more investors are, have been attracted to the affordable space. And I think we saw that there was also a need for, for developers with a focus on asset management to buy affordable housing, buy project-based Section 8 housing, invest in the physical component, invest in the building, and improve the quality of life for the residents, extend the affordability of those buildings. So a lot of the project-based Section 8 buildings were built years ago and had expiring regulatory or no regulatory, city regulatory involvement. So we've been able to structure extensions of affordability, investment in the building, and um, deliver a risk-adjusted return to our investors. So there's a strong demand for that. So you've got, say, give or take 3,000 units in the pipeline of affordable housing. And I imagine that's on a varying scale of affordability. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember last time we spoke, you told me you just opened an apartment in Harlem for um, seniors with less than 200 units. You got over 40,000 applications. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that kind of speaks to the, the, the gulf here in terms of supply and demand. Yeah. In New York City, especially, there is a huge demand for affordable housing where you're getting thousands of applications for, for every unit that you build. And it's a unique challenge because in uh, you know in some other places you struggle to get and and with other types of housing you struggle to get even one unit leased up but with affordable it's in in especially in New York City it's kind of a never-ending line of people who need it and you you really can't build it fast enough so we're we're resource constrained both in in people who can get things done but also in in dollars 
and in um, in both city dollars and federal dollars. So we're you know the city there's they are always looking to stretch the the resources that they have, the financial resources that they have, so they can create the most units. And at the federal level, we've been active in um, fixing the 4%, doing things like fixing the 4% credit to generate, I think in New York City this year, they thought about, about another 250 million of tax credit equity, um, and also change legislatively some of the rules around bond financing to extend that resource further. So there are various things that are in the works. Hopefully, you know, some of them will materialize in order to be able to do more with the resources that we have. There's an interesting sort of um, point that we're at in the city right now that I've been observing that people are kind of lining up on two sides. One, one side is like, we need to develop more. We need to be pro-development and that will help the affordable housing. The other side is... We need to. Um, we don't need to develop as much. We need to address. For example, I spoke with Linda Rosenthal, Assembly Member. She actually said the words to me: "We don't need development right now." 421A, for example, <sighs> conceived in a time that was when the city had no development. What we need to focus on is things like Section Eight. Where do you kind of fall on that um, spectrum of discussion? We need to do more with the resources that we have. So we have a finite number of tools where we have section eight, which is limited. We have subsidy, which is also limited. We have taxes and bonds, which generates tax credits. That's limited. And then we have zoning controls. So the way that you create new affordable housing is to combine all of those things together in some, in some way. And given the lack of supply and the housing crisis that that we're in, the number of people who need affordable places to stay so that they can they can live in the place that they work. I think we need to combine all of those resources in order to create more housing for the people who need it. And that includes using density in order to make the most out of a out of a development site. That's not historically, at least over the past, you know, eight years, that hasn't been the most popular position to build more, but it's an important one to consider as you're trying to address a housing crisis, a homeless crisis. There are 60,000 people in, in homeless shelters and many more people who live on the streets and a, a New York City budget that is stressed and will continue, seems to be continued to be stressed. So you have to combine the tools that you have in order to start to address the inequality that exists. Are you worried about the, um, the types of conversations? Well, this, I guess the tenor of the conversations is more, more how you describe them. So people have lined up on one particular view or have one particular kind of um, take on how things should happen. And I don't know, I hear people say there's not a lot of room for conversation. You think it's going to... Yeah, I think, I think especially now in an election year, there are some people who are looking for headlines and it's easy to say no to something. It's easy to say that privatization is bad or that RAD, NYCHA's RAD program is bad, that evil for-profit landlords are coming in and they're going to take over your house and turn it into a market rate condo. That is something that grabs a headline and is really far from the truth. I think 
the NYCHA's RAD program and NYCHA's recent move to form partnerships with their really public-private partnerships between NYCHA, between developers, for-profit and nonprofit, and with the housing agencies to stabilize NYCHA's housing stock, to invest in the buildings, to make sure that they'll withstand another 40 years and won't fall down. That is a program that has for been a real win for NYCHA, for the city, and most importantly, for the residents who live in the buildings. We were part of a project called Baychester Murphy in the Bronx that we just finished, 750 units. And I think that's an example of the way that NYCHA's uh, RAD program and NYCHA's PACT program works really well. So NYCHA makes, NYCHA is part of the ownership. NYCHA, NYCHA's primary role is to make sure that the tenants are protected and to provide long-term affordability protections for the people who live in the buildings. And our role is to structure the financing and to execute on the business plan, which is the renovation of the apartments, the management of the buildings, making sure that the residents are satisfied and that they have a place that they can call home and be proud of. And I think Baychester Murphy is an example of the way that you can achieve all of those goals. Rick, really appreciate you making time. Very good to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you.